After the Second World War, there used to be a pedophilic cult ran by a former Nazi named Paul Schaffer in Chile. And we've heard a lot of stories about cults in general, but this case is different because the Chilean government actually protected this cult and allowed it to conduct crimes against people and especially children. Have you ever heard of Colonia Dignidad? Colonia Dignidad. Dignidad, as in D-A-D. Dignidad. Yeah. Oh. So, Colonia Dignidad, or in English it means the colony, was originally created as a safe haven for German immigrants, but Paul Schaffer's leadership transformed its resident into a cult that aided him in covering his sexual abuse against children. This cult would continue to do horrendous things. At one point, he would even illegally adopt the children living in the rural areas or near the cult. Like, he would take the babies from the mothers, and the government not only allowed this, but helped in the operation. Today, we'll be talking about the case of Colonia Dignidad. Before we talk about the case itself, we'll dive deeper into the depths of cult and how this phenomenon is complex and multifaceted. There's no denying that cults has been around since ages. You can hear news about popular cults in the world, like the Manson family, led by Charles Manson. Locally here in Indonesia, there has been numerous of cults emerging back in the days like Leah Eden cult or the Jellyfish Kingdom cult. Have you ever heard of the Jellyfish Kingdom cult in Indonesia? Do they love Spongebob? Um, I think their leader believes to be Nirorokidul or like in Indonesian, specifically Javanese believe, she is the goddess of the sea. But why jellyfish? I just want to know, why jellyfish? I don't know, you have to ask Nirorokidul herself for this. We can talk about this cult specifically in like the next episodes, but we're not going to be talking about that today. So the word cult comes from an old Latin word, cultus, that used to mean things like admiration, teaching, and cultivation. Over time, it became a word we use for different kinds of groups. Some of these groups are really into strange and extreme beliefs. But the word cult can be a little tricky because it's not only about weird and bad beliefs, we also use it to talk about things like movies or music that are loved by a small group of fans. So when we say a movie has a cult following, it just means that a particular group of people really, really likes it. It doesn't mean the movie is bad or harmful. So what about the cults we see on the news? Those shadowy and isolated organizations that leaves a long string of crime in their wake. You might be wondering, why do people get into these type of isolated groups, the doomsday cults, or religious and even sex cults? Let's dig deeper into the techniques of how these predatory groups like cults have honed into perfection over the decades. Acolytes of Horrors mentioned in one of their videos that cults hide their horror in the daylight and use worship and ritual as a psychic bombardment. If you haven't known about this, it's believed that every brainwashing story begins in the same place, which is loneliness. Real-world cults are actually filled with lonely people who are desperate to finding a place where they quote-unquote belong. While this is not the only factor on why people might join a cult in the first place, but former cult members often describe the long-lasting sense of loneliness and nihilism they felt prior to becoming a part of something bigger than themselves. This encourages them to put down their defenses and accept the stranger elements of their new communities. Unfortunately, in extreme cases, this desire for belonging and purpose has led to some really terrible and even deadly situations. 
a Hartford professor of psychiatry by the name of John G. Clark wrote that cult recruiters are often found in bus stations, airports, rallies, anywhere the unattached people would be passing through. People in cults are alone and afraid. Would you rather be alone or be in a cult? I'll be alone with you. <laughs> That's not alone. Be in a cult with you? <laughs> That's even worse! So let's get back into the techniques on how cults brainwash you into joining them. It's believed that these techniques are divided into four parts. Number one, targeting lonely people like we've just discussed. Number two, blinding them with sunshine. So how does this work? Well, a former cult member who escaped a doomsday cult by the name of Worldwide Church of God wrote afterwards that the indoctrination of the process was the best part of being in the group. New people were invited to dinner, offered home-cooked meals, and support around the home. They also had their cards filled with happy social events, basically completely love-bombed. Love-bombing is a very common manipulation tactic. It often occurs in toxic relationships where the intention behind good deeds and kind actions is to foster codependency. In this process, individuals deliberately provide superficial affections and grand gestures with the aim of making the other person become codependent on them. Niceness lets the barriers down, but it also prevents appropriate boundaries from being in place whenever someone feels uncomfortable. However, some people think that this is a small price to pay because who wouldn't want to be a part of an intoxicatingly nice community, right? Now, the third part is exhausting them with stress. So brainwashing is just a matter of mental exhaustion. You can't really control people with kindness alone. That's why cults constantly keep their members stressed and tired. They make sure that more of the members' time, money, and energy are demanded. Sometimes they even physically or sexually abuse the members, and if any of the members are asking questions or being critical about the situation, they would say something along the lines of, oh, maybe you're not as pure as the rest of us, or maybe you don't really belong here. This may sound familiar to anyone who's been in a toxic relationship. After the love bombing and you have no sense of boundaries left, everything is demanded from you. And you feel like it's your job to fulfill that. You feel like it's your responsibility to fulfill the demands and expectations because then they would kind of threaten you, saying things like, oh, maybe we should break up, or after everything I've done for you, etc. Right? So you can say that the tactics of cults actually mirror the tactics and power dynamics in toxic relationships or relationships where there is often emotional and physical abuse. The giving and taking of love and affection, the push and pull, the demeaning, the isolating from friends or even family, and the use of sex as a control instrument. The reason why I correlate the two is that sometimes it's hard to comprehend why people join cults and stay in that cult for decades, even after all of the abuse. But at the same time, we also see a lot of people around us staying in a toxic relationship for years, even after it has terrorized their mental and physical health. Because the truth is, nobody is really immune to the manipulation of some of the ugliest ideas of human society. But people don't fall into the hands of cults or toxic relationships because of moral failure or because they lack intellectual ability. They do it because their conditions leave them so isolated and alone in their struggles that they would take any offer of community and support they can get. A religion cult? Wow, you're on a very thin ice with that question. In my opinion, it's very great to be curious. It's very great to question everything and to not 
take everything blindly. But that question, we'll just leave it for another day and leave it for another person to answer because I don't want to stir up any unnecessary controversy. But the real question is, have you ever been approached by like a group of people that you know that are in a cult? Or just have you ever been approached by a cult? Oh, no, no, no. Hello, my name is Father Price. I want to teach you something about Jesus Christ. <laughs> have, you, have you not seen a musical? No. Huh. I was so confused. I'm sorry. At least you made yourself laugh. Uh-huh. Anyways, let's move on to today's case, the Colonia Dignidad. The story begins with a man by the name of Paul Schaffer, who was of German descent. He was born to a mother called Anna and a father called Jacob. Sorry, it's Jacques, Jacob, 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 Jacob. I forgot how to pronounce Jacob. I'm sorry. <clears throat> His father called Jacob. Growing up, he was described to be a poor and clumsy student. And a fact about him is that he lost his right eye in an accident with a fork. During his time in World War II, though, he would claim that his fake eye was the result of the war wound. After the Second World War in 1945, he started to serve as a young people's leader in a free church, since he was a big fan of an American preacher by the name of William Branham. William Branham, one of the founders of the post-World War II healing revival, was also an influence on Jim Jones, who was a leader of a suicide cult. Now, Paul was completely fascinated by Branham, not only because of his supposed healing, but because behind the latter rain doctrine, the axis of what Branham preached, there was a totalitarian, misogynistic, and apocalyptic message, perfect to brainwash all of those who were willing to follow him. And because of this, in 1952, Paul was gathering quite a following, and by 1953, he had already established an orphanage and a children's home. His supporters were mainly war widows and their children seeking refuge from Soviet-occupied East Prussia. And so fast forward to 1959, Paul started a so-called charitable organization. And that same year, he was accused of sexually abusing two young boys. And so a warrant was issued for his arrest in Germany. But rather than facing his charges, Paul made a run for it. So Paul and his followers headed to the Middle East in search of a new place to settle. But the Chilean ambassador to Germany at that time, seeing Paul's plight, offered him a helping hand. And before you know it, Paul and his followers had found a new home in Chile. In 1961, Paul Schaffer arrived in Chile and obtained permission to create the Dignidad Beneficent Society. His arrival was accompanied with a group of approximately 70 followers and several kidnapped children. And this colony, or Dignidad Beneficent Society, was built on a 4,400-acre ranch outside of Peril. To the outside world, the colony portrayed itself as a prime example of German sufficiency, cleanliness, and communal work. The profitable agriculture production and attached charity hospital helped preserving this image for a long time. The colony had its own press operations, who recorded and broadcasted videos showing their happy residents amid celebrations. And in these videos, they would often show their men members doing farm work and their women and girls preparing butter. It's to the point that diplomats at the German embassy ignored reports of the violence and crime and praised this colony as a model colony. In reality, this colony was a hell on earth. It was a colony based on fear. 
members were prohibited from interacting with the outside world, and a select few were armed to defend against potential external threats. The community lived under an authoritarian system, where families were split apart and romantic relationships were forbidden. He also viewed women as inherently sinful creatures and positioned them lower than men, resulting in separation of sexes. Paul would also sexually assault minor boys, who were also subjected to torture and electroshock therapy, and he would tell them that their pain was only a placebo. He encouraged the members to confess to their sins to him, and used that to public shame them as a mean of punishment. Everyone had to wear German clothing from the 1930s, and they had to work at least 12 hours a day without receiving payment, solely for the benefit of Colonia Dignidad. And if any of those multiple strict rules were broken, beatings were handed out freely by an all-male council of those closest to Paul. Well, they don't get paid? No. They don't get paid? No. They don't get paid at all. So how do they live? They're just given food and place yeah. to sleep. Paul is a violent totalitarian, so when someone who is as violent and as totalitarian like Pinochet came to power in Chile in 1973, they inevitably became friends. He asked for tax exemption and asylum in Chile in exchange for political intelligence for his organization, and Pinochet could help Paul by allowing his colony to remain unbothered by outside authorities, even going so far as to prevent any of the compound's SKPs from leaving the country. Paul would also teach Pinochet and his men how to effectively torture people. He eventually offered Pinochet a private underground bunker environment for a spot of an in-house torturing. Now, this underground bunkers were ran by Paul and subjected captives to torture including mutilation by dogs and electric shocks. There are actually allegations that Paul was directly involved in this. Upon the discovery later on, it turned out there were over 500 government files revealing severe human rights violation under his supervision and Pinochet's collaboration. Pinochet later allegedly ordered mass graves containing hundreds of murdered detainees to be buried and disposed of in the sea or burned. Both Pinochet and Paul used each other's skills and influence to keep their separate communities obedient. Now, at this time, the colony had built a school and hospitals within its walls to provide free education and healthcare services to rural families. This was seen as a way to gain support in case of an attack on the colony. This was also the time when they also were illegally adopting children to be sent to the colony and continue Paul's legacy. Mothers would take their babies and children to the hospital within the colony and after giving the baby to the nurse for, say, a checkup, they were not allowed to see their children again. And the sickest thing about this case is that social workers, nuns, doctors, lawyers, and international adoption agencies were all involved in this operation. From all the children that has been taken from their mothers inside the hospital, how did they just accept it or like couldn't they fight back because there are a lot of children? Okay, before I answer to that question, I need to tell you about a fact that you need to know. So this operation was not only happening in this particular cult, okay? It was happening all over Chile. It was happening all over hospitals in Chile. And like I said, the federal officials in Chile were in on this operation as well. So this is really not about why didn't they fight back or why did they just accept it? I'm sure they didn't accept it. Nobody would accept um, a corrupted evil system, right? 
when there's a corrupted system, you don't blame the people for not fighting back. Just because they're not fighting back or just because it doesn't seem like they are fighting back doesn't mean they're accepting it, doesn't mean they actually enjoy the corrupted system. It just means they have no power over change. They're just aware of their lack of resources and the chances of them not making the impact that they want. Oh, and also with this like illegal adoption, the government of Chile at that time actually thought that this was like a good deed because they would send these illegal adoptees to countries like the US or Sweden, etc. Because because their parents can't take care of them properly. Is that No, no, it's not the case. It's not that the parents can't take care of their children properly, but it's the government thinking that they can't. And all of that are actually based off of, oh, these people are from the third world country. And still, that's a criminal activity. That's, not only That's it's, basically human trafficking. Yeah, that's actually like legal human trafficking, right? Uh, human trafficking is not legal. I mean, in this case, the government made it legal because they are in on the operations. The organization actually went on until 1990 when Pinochet was finally overthrown. And in 1996, an arrest warrant was issued for Paul on multiple counts of child sexual abuse. He evaded capture and trial again by hiding himself and eventually fled to Buenos Aires, where authorities finally apprehended him in 2005, approximately nine years after his flight. And so the Chilean court convicted him and 26 other cult members of child abuse. And in 2006, Paul was sentenced to only 20 years in prison. And he died five years into his 20-year sentence at the age of 89 years old. Colonia Dignidad is now called Via Baviera, a great watered-down German-themed tourist destination with German music, a restaurant, a petting zoo, and a souvenir shop. A lot of people are actually against this, saying that it's insensitive because it was a place where a lot of people were tortured and were killed, and now it's like a petting zoo. It's like making a German concentration camp a theme park. I mean, yeah, I get why people would think that that's insensitive. But what do you guys think? Let us know in the review section on Apple Podcast about this episode to let us know what you think about this case particularly. But that's it for today's episode. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.